Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. It's time for Tales of Terror, only on the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated PG-13, suggesting that children under the age of 13 should listen accompanied with an adult. Introduction of Tales of Mystery and Horror by Maurice Leville. Translated by Alice Eyre Macklin. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Ben Tucker. Tales of Mystery and Horror. Introduction by Henry B. Irving. In allowing his stories to take on an English form, Monsieur Maurice Leville is courting comparison with some very remarkable writers in his own particular line of writing. It was Mr. Arnold Bennett who said that there are as good short stories in the English language as in any other, and if he had gone on to say there are as good stories of weirdness and horror in English as in any other language, he would not have been wide of the mark. Edgar Allan Poe, Sheridan Le Fanu, Robert Louis Stevenson, George Eliot in The Lifted Veil, Marion Crawford in The Upper Berth, Henry James in The Two Magics, and among living authors Kipling, H.G. Wells, Conan Doyle, Quiller Couch, W. W. Jacobs, the Provost of Eton, and Arthur Machen. All these have excelled in varying degree in the kind of story which Monsieur Lebel writes. But Monsieur Lebel can well afford to stand the test of comparison. Reminding one of Edgar Allan Poe more than any other, he employs the method of O. Henry in the service of the horrible. Monsieur Lebel has given literary expression of a high order to the compact horrors of the Grand Guignol. There is undoubted originality in his treatment of that kind of gruesomeness which fascinated the imagination of Poe, but his stories are much more real than those of Poe, terser, more concentrated in their horror. They bear a closer relation to life, and in certain of them there is a genuine pathos of which Poe was incapable. This last quality finds best expression in such of his stories as The Beggar and Extenuating Circumstances. It would be idle to pretend that Monsieur Leville's stories are all of equal merit. In so prolific a writer, it would be impossible that they should be. But to the reader who likes this sort of thing, they offer something new in the way of tasting horrors. Jaded as his palate may be, he will get unaccustomed thrills out of Monsieur Leville. He can sit in his armchair and enjoy some of the terrors of the Grand Guignol without risking the frequent ineffectiveness of the horrible when it is put crudely on the stage. Monsieur Lebel is himself a gay, light-hearted man, essentially Parisian in temperament. He is no morbid student, no irredeemable pessimist, whose natural melancholy colors his whole life and imagination. He is a daring sportsman, fond of all outdoor sports, leading a simple life, an ardent patriot who has proved his patriotism in the field. When asked on one occasion to explain the difference between the somber character of his work and his apparent light-heartedness, he said that writers of sad things are usually gay in real life, 
while professional humorists are frequently melancholy. His sad stories, he said, were written in youth, which, by a law of contrast, seems inclined to dwell on the sad side of things. Monsieur Leville is now about forty years of age. His first story was written during a night watch in a hospital, at which he was house surgeon. He took it to José Marie de Heredia, the academician, then literary editor of Le Journal, who accepted it for publication, and was a warm friend of the author till his death a few years ago. Monsieur Lavelle's father was an Alsatian. From him he inherited an intense love of France and hatred of Germany. Indeed, to the latter influence he traces his early sense of tragedy in life. His father was an officer in the army, and much of his youth was spent in Algiers. He came to Paris to study medicine, and in the course of that study acquired the knowledge of and sympathy with real suffering, which gives to some of the most tragic of his tales a true and human touch. An accident he met with while skating in Switzerland in 1910 made very active work impossible. Depuis hélas, je pêche à la lingua, was his own description of his apparent future. But in 1914, he left the sanatorium in Switzerland, where he was resting, and joined the second Tyrolleurs Marocain. He fought with them until his health gave way, and then acted as a military surgeon in a base hospital. I trust I have said enough to commend to English readers the work of one who, as artist and man, may justly claim their interest and admiration. Translator's Note In his scholarly little preface, Mr. H. B. Irving has said all that is necessary to introduce Maurice Lavelle, the writer of the original French of these stories to English readers. But I feel that I should like to explain why I sat down during a war that overwhelmed us all with misery to translate work that is not only too well described as tales of mystery and horror. It was certainly not because, as a smiling friend suggested, I imagined I was thereby adding to the gaiety of nations. I hope and believe that I am adding something better than that. Voilà. It is some years since I first came across Maurice Lavelle's work in Le Journal, the French newspaper that is famed for its daily short story, which is almost always contributed by one or other of the most celebrated writers in France. The story that attracted my attention was one that is translated here under the title Blue Eyes. For me, there was nothing shocking in the theme. France is one of those happy countries where people accept knowledge of the facts of life as simply as they accept the state of the weather and in its salons you may discuss subjects we others still feel it polite to ignore as impersonally as you would the rising of the sign or the price of coal. What struck me was the sympathy and understanding that underlay the telling of the episode. Not a word of explanation or moralizing, just a simple statement of a dramatic happening, en passant. You want to know the superstitious horror the submerged classes have of the guillotine to realize how dramatic the denouement is, that revealed, apparently, unconsciously, a devoted love, heroic effort to keep a promise and a complete abnegation of self that raises an apparently lost soul to a height it is not given us all to attain. This was all the more striking because between the lines you divine the details of the sad little life story. A child pretty and delicate, who was either brought up in or had sunk into the depths of the underworld where she fell into the hands of a souteneur who represented all she knew of romance and love. The ghastly existence that led to forgetting the words of prayer that rise mechanically to all lips in Catholic countries when the cemeteries are visited on the day that is annually and very beautifully given up to the memory of the dead.
the moral insensibility that underlay her way of getting the flowers for the grave of the dead lover. Never had I read anything that so well explained the truth of the tu comprendre c'est du pardonner. I began to look out for further stories by the same author and found that, whatever the subject, there was always the same profound understanding and sympathy. What could be more pity-compelling, for instance, than the life history of the unfortunate hero of the beggar? It is again between the lines that you learn of an abandoned child, picked up out of charity, predestined by circumstances and limited brain power to know nothing of life but its miseries, yet who retained a simple, kindly nature, dulled by misfortune, his greatest grief being that children were always afraid of and ran away from him, and who revolts only when a selfless attempt to do a kind action for a chance acquaintance leads to his being treated as if he were of less account than a dog. Never before had he felt so despised and rejected. Illusion is another story of the same kind, and there are scores of similar examples among the seven hundred contes Mr. Level has written. It goes without saying that I was also influenced by the supreme art that can in two thousand words give a clear and definite impression, not only of the character of people who, in many of the stories, do not even have names given to them, but frequently of their heredity and other influences that amount to predestination. But that was not the important point, and in any case the literary merit must be left to the judgment of the reader. Another human attribute that struck me immensely as I read was the writer's complete understanding of the sick, as well as of the mentally deficient brain. The terrible happenings in the taint, the maniac, a mistake, the titanic Greek drama-like revenge in The Last Kiss, etc., are all natural and logical if you consider the effect the circumstances that led to the crises would have on exasperated nerves and overstrained brains. The latter probably never well balanced. One would be inclined to regret the brain specialist who was lost when Maurice Level gave up his medical career for literature, were it not that he has probably been more useful in another direction. For I feel I cannot be alone in thinking that stories that show so clearly how very fine the line is between sanity and brain sickness, how completely at the mercy of circumstances many of us are, that the moral insensibility that causes so many manifestations of criminal tendency is a disease and must be accepted and dealt with as a kind of awful predestination, must lead to a better understanding of various social evils, to a sort of but for the grace of God there goes John Bunyan, attitude towards many we might otherwise shrink from and lead unaided. Not that Maurice Level ever thought of that. He will probably be amazed when he reads what I say. He wrote because he could not help it, for, to use a much-abused phrase, art for art's sake. And his subjects came unbidden, thrust on him by the obscure instinct that guides the born writer. But the value of his work from the human document point of view remains the same, and must have for many the special appeal it had for Mr. Irving, whose two books, Studies of French Criminals of the Nineteenth Century and A Book of Remarkable Criminals, prove how profound his own studies in criminology and the psychology of criminals have been. Alice R. Macklin End of Introduction Section 1 of Tales of Mystery and Horror by Maurice Level, Translated by Alice R. Macklin This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Ben Tucker The Debt Collector 
Ravano, debt collector to the same bank for ten years, was a model employee. Never had there been the least cause to find fault with him. Never had the slightest error been detected in his books. Living alone, carefully avoiding new acquaintances, keeping out of cafes and without love affairs, he seemed happy, quite content with his lot. If it were sometimes said in his hearing, "'It must be a temptation to handle such large sums,' he would quietly reply, "'Why? Money that doesn't belong to you is not money.' In the locality in which he lived, he was looked upon as a paragon, his advice sought after and taken. On the evening of one collecting day, he did not return to his home. The idea of dishonesty never even suggested itself to those who knew him. Possibly, a crime had been committed. The police traced his movements during the day. He had presented his bills punctually, and had collected his last sum near the Montreux Gate about seven o'clock. At the time, he had over 200,000 francs in his possession. Further than that, all trace of him was lost. They scoured the neighborhood and waste ground that lies near the fortifications. The hovels that are found here and there in the military zone were ransacked, all with no result. As a matter of form, they telegraphed in every direction to every frontier station. But the directors of the bank, as well as the police, had little doubt that he had been lain in wait for, robbed, and thrown into the river. Basing their deductions on certain clues, they were able to state almost positively that the coup had been planned for some time by professional thieves. Only one man in Paris shrugged his shoulders when he read about it in the papers. That man was Revenot. Just at the time when the keenest sleuth-hounds of the police were losing his scent, he had reached the sign by the Boulevard Exterieur. He had dressed himself under the arch of a bridge in some everyday clothes he had left there the night before, had put the two thousand francs in his pocket, and, making a bundle of his uniform and satchel, he had dropped the hole, weighted with a large stone into the river, and unperturbed had returned to Paris. He slept at a hotel, and slept well. In a few hours he had become a consummate thief. Profiting by his start, he might have taken a train across the frontier, but he was too wise to suppose that a few hundred kilometers would put him beyond the reach of the gendarme, and he had no illusions as to the fate that awaited him. He would most assuredly be arrested. Besides, his plan was a very different one. When daylight came, he enclosed the two hundred thousand francs in an envelope, sealed it with five seals, and went to a lawyer. Monsieur, said he, this is why I have come to you. In this envelope I have some securities, papers that I want to leave in safety. I am going for a long journey, and I don't know when I shall return. I should like to leave this packet with you. I suppose you have no objection to my doing so? None whatever. I'll give you a receipt. He assented, then began to think. A receipt? Where could he put it? To whom entrust it? If he kept it on his person, he would certainly lose his deposit. He hesitated, not having foreseen this complication. Then he said easily, I am alone in the world without relations and friends. The journey I intend making is not without danger. I should run the risk of losing the receipt, or it might be destroyed. Would it not be possible for you to take possession of the packet and 
place it in safety among your documents, and when I return I should merely have to tell you, or your successor, my name. But if I do that, state on the receipt that it can only be claimed in this way. At any rate, if there is any risk, it is mine. Agreed. What is your name? He replied without hesitation. Uh, Duverger. Henri Duverger. When he got back to the street, he breathed a sigh of relief. The first part of his program was over. They could clap the handcuffs on him now. The substance of his theft was beyond reach. He had worked things out with cold deliberation on these lines. On the expiration of his sentence, he would claim the deposit. No one would be able to dispute his right to it. Four or five unpleasant years to be gone through, and he would be a rich man. It was preferable to spending his life trudging from door to door collecting debts. He would go to live in the country. To everyone, he would be Monsieur Duverger. He would grow old in peace and contentment, known as an honest, charitable man, for he would spend some of the money on others. He waited twenty-four hours longer to make sure the numbers of the notes were not known, and reassured on this point he gave himself up, a cigarette between his lips. Another man in his place would have invented some story. He preferred to tell the truth, to admit the theft. Why waste time? But at his trial, as when he was first charged, it was impossible to drag from him a word about what he had done with the two hundred thousand francs. He confined himself to saying, I don't know. I fell asleep on a bench. In my turn, I was robbed. Thanks to his irreproachable past, he was sentenced to only five years' penal servitude. He heard the sentence without moving a muscle. He was thirty-five. At forty, he would be free and rich. He considered the confinement a small, necessary sacrifice. In the prison where he served his sentence, he was a model for all the others, just as he had been a model employee. He watched the slow days pass without impatience or anxiety, concerned only about his health. At last the day of his discharge came. They gave him back his little stock of personal effects, and he left with but one idea in his mind, that of getting to the lawyer. As he walked along, he imagined the coming scene. He would arrive. He would be ushered into the impressive office. Would the lawyer recognize him? He would look in the glass. Decidedly, he had grown considerably older, and no doubt his face bore traces of his experience. No, certainly the lawyer would not recognize him. <laughs> it would add to the humor of the situation. What can I do for you, monsieur? I have come for a deposit I made here five years ago. Which deposit? In what name? In the name of monsieur. Ravenot stopped suddenly, murmuring. How extraordinary. I can't remember the name I gave. He racked his brains. A blank. He sat down on a bench, and, feeling that he was growing unnerved, reasoned with himself. Come, come, be calm. Monsieur, monsieur, it began with which letter? For an hour he sat lost in thought, straining his memory, groping after something that might suggest a clue. A waste of time. The name danced in front of him. Round about him he saw the letters jump, the syllables vanish. Every second he felt that he had it, that it was before his eyes, on his lips. No. At first this only worried him. 
Then it became a sharp irritation that cut into him with a pain that was almost physical. Hot waves ran up and down his back. His muscles contracted. He found it impossible to sit still. His hands began to twitch. He bit his dry lips. He was divided between an impulse to weep and to fight. But the more he focused his attention, the further the name seemed to recede. He struck the ground with his foot, rose and said aloud, What's the good of worrying? It only makes things worse. If I leave off thinking about it, it will come of itself. But an obsession cannot be shaken off in this way. In vain, he turned his attention to the faces of the passers-by, stopped at the shop windows, listened to the street noises. While he listened, unhearing and looked unseeing, the great question persisted. Monsieur, monsieur. Night came. The streets were deserted. Worn out, he went to a hotel, asked for a room, and flung himself fully dressed on the bed. For hours, he went on racking his brain. At dawn, he fell asleep. It was broad daylight when he awoke. He stretched himself luxuriously, his mind at ease, but in a flash the obsession gripped him again. Monsieur, monsieur... A new sensation began to dominate his anguish of mind. Fear. Fear that he might never remember the name. Never. He got up, went out, walked for hours at random, loitering about the office of the lawyer. For a second time the night fell. He clutched his head in his hands and groaned, I shall go mad. A terrible idea had now taken possession of his mind. He had two hundred thousand francs in notes. Two hundred thousand francs, acquired by dishonesty, of course. But his, and they were out of his reach. To get them, he had undergone five years in prison, and now he could not touch them. The notes were there, waiting for him, and one word, a mere word he could not remember, stood, an insuperable barrier, between him and them. He beat with clenched fists on his head, feeling his reason trembling in the balance. He stumbled against the lampposts with the sway of a drunken man, tripped over the curbstones. It was no longer an obsession or a torment. It had become a frenzy of his whole being, of his brain, and of his flesh. He had now become convinced that he would never remember. His imagination conjured up a sardonic laugh that rang in his ears. People in the streets seemed to point at him as he passed. His steps quickened into a run that carried him straight ahead, knocking up against the passers-by, oblivious of the traffic. He wished that someone would strike him so that he might strike back, that he might be run over, crushed out of existence. Monsieur, monsieur. At his feet the sign flowed by, a muddy green, spangled with the reflections of the bright stars, he sobbed out, Monsieur, oh, that name, that name. He went down the steps that led to the water, and lying face downwards, worked himself towards the river to cool his face and hands. He was panting. The water drew him, drew his hot eyes, his ears. He felt himself slipping, but unable to cling to the steep bank, he fell. The shock of the cold water set every nerve a tingle. He struggled, thrust out his arms, flung his head up, went under, 
rose to the surface again, and in a sudden, mighty effort, his eyes, starting from his head, yelled, I've got it! Help! Du verger! Du... The quay was deserted. The water rippled against the pillars of the bridge. The echo of the somber arch repeated the name in the silence. The river rose and fell lazily. Lights danced on it, white and red. A wave a little stronger than the rest licked the bank near the moving rings. All was still. End of Section 1 The Debt Collector You're listening to Tuesday Terrors on the Mutual Audio Network. Tomorrow is our weekly anthology for science fiction and fantasy as Lothar Tuppen brings you Wednesday Wonders. Subscribe to the full Mutual Audio Network feed for every day of amazing audio or find the Wednesday Wonders feed in your favorite podcast player. And thank you for listening, everybody. The Mutual Audio Drama Network, where we listen and imagine together.